Water bugs don't need to sweat. I once called a waterfall a water plunge and was ridiculed. Maybe hot springs can cure manias. No water slide is complete without gravity. Don't wear goggles when sad or they'll fill up with tears. All fins are flippers, but not all flippers are fins. What is it about salt that makes water so unfresh? I'd be remiss if I didn't say lily pad. If the moon thinks tides are a big deal, so should you. So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the 11th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent. And before we begin, let me reiterate for the 10th time that Out of All Doors is a show about the outdoors. I think you're all old enough to understand what that means. I don't think that any of the content on this episode is going to make you sit up and cry, Hey, I thought this show was called Out of All Doors. If anything, you're going to sit up and cry, Of course, the name of the show is Out of All Doors, after all. Also, before we dive into this month's episode, I unfortunately again need to address something that happened on last month's episode. As some of you may have noticed, as I was reading the delightfully chilling tale sent in by listener Deanna for the Campfire of Chills segment, a gravelly menacing voice could at one point be heard making insulting comments about Deanna's story. Now, I want to take this opportunity to apologize to Deanna and to assure her that we here at Out of All Doors very much enjoyed her story and appreciated the fact that she sent it in. If we didn't, we never would have read it on the show. The truth is, we don't know how that voice got into the recording. I did not hear it while I was reading the story, and I did not hear it while I was editing the episode together. The only conclusion that I've been able to come to is that a ghost somehow managed to supernaturally inject his frankly rude and insulting opinion into the segment in such a way so as to ensure that everyone heard it. My sincere hope is that this ghost will not see fit to interject again, but if it does, then I just want you listeners to know that it has done so without permission and without approval. So don't blame me. Now, this month is hot, in case you haven't noticed, what with all the high temperatures, humidity, and heat. If you're anything like me, it doesn't take long for all this heat to make you hot. You may even begin to perspire, which in some cultures is a sign of ill health although science tells us that being sweaty actually means you're at the pinnacle of health. Look at your sweaty skin under a microscope and you'll see what science is talking about. But being hot and sweaty is uncomfortable and many people this time of year are looking for ways to batter, bludgeon, bash, and otherwise beat the hotness. Well, I'm 32 years old and in those 32 years there's one way I've found to cool down that works better than anything else. That's right, it's Earth's most plentiful and therefore least valuable natural resource, water. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. Each summer, billions of people turn to water to help them cool off, whether they're dunking their heads in water troughs, drinking out of water troughs like a horse, submerging their entire bodies in water troughs like dusty, drunken cowboys, or snorkeling in the ocean, mere steps away from the bungalows they've rented at beachfront resorts. But let's take a slightly closer look at water-related activities. What are some good ones? How do you do them? What are the risks? Will we be getting wet, despite the fact that our mothers explicitly forbade us from doing so? What follows are answers to the questions I just now posited. One way to have fun in, on, or in the general vicinity of water is to water ski. Once you've mastered that, you can slalom, which is water skiing on one ski. Once you've mastered that, you can barefoot ski, which means no skis at all. You're just skimming over the water on the soles of your feet. 
And then when you've mastered that, it's time for you to pull the boat while barefoot, by which I mean you will be barefoot, not the boat. The boat will be on skis. Another way to get pulled over the water by a boat is to ride on a tube attached to the boat with the rope. This is called tubing because of the essential involvement of the aforementioned tube. If you're on the tube and want the boat driver to go faster, give a thumbs up. Want the boat driver to slow down? Give a thumbs down. Want the boat driver to stop? Make a horizontal cutting motion with your hand. Want the boat driver to help you move to a new house later this week? Use both hands to pantomime the lifting and carrying of furniture. Do you get it? Do you realize what just happened there? If you'd really been on a tube and you'd attempted to pantomime lifting and moving furniture with both hands, that would have required you to let go of the tube entirely and you would have toppled back into the water before managing much pantomime at all. That's a little trick that boat drivers use to ensure that no tuber will ever be able to successfully ask them to help them move while in the middle of a tube ride. Snorkeling can be fun, provided no one puts a big cockroach down your snorkel. Scuba diving is also great, according to some reports, although Out of Old Doors has not yet been able to confirm these reports as authentic, meaning there's still a slim possibility that these reports were submitted by a coalition of stingrays and electric eels seeking to entice more victims. And not all water activities must be done on, in, or near large bodies of water. For example, why not have a water balloon fight? Nothing says summer fun like the sight of a brightly colored water-filled balloon sailing through the air, ineffectually bouncing off of its intended target, and then bursting on the ground and dampening the grass, on which the intended target could then potentially slip, land upon, and then, if the target's skin or clothing comes into contact with the damp grass, the target him or herself could then become damp as well. Mission accomplished. Squirt guns are fun, too. The most famous squirt guns are super soakers, propelled to fame by their alliterative brand name, their dissimilar appearance to real guns, and their capacity for soaking superbly. I never owned one. I had to make do with a wimpy wetener. Then, of course, there's running through the sprinkler. Simple, cheap, and if you stick with it for a few consecutive hours without taking any breaks, quite fun indeed. I've personally found that running through the sprinkler doesn't really cross the threshold of fun until about hour four, but it might take as many as eight or nine hours before it starts being fun for you. If you're still not having fun at hour 12, then maybe running through the sprinkler isn't for you. And what about skinny dipping? For you prudes out there, skinny dipping is swimming without clothes on, but not for the purpose of cleanliness, because that would just be bathing. One big thing to keep in mind when skinny dipping is that your clothes might get stolen while you're in the water. If that happens, then your only option is to collect as many leeches as you can and affix them to your body in strategic locations. If you have reservations about this technique, then let me reassure you, the leeches will not mind. Also, a lot of concerned people want to know if they can still call it skinny dipping even if they aren't skinny. The answer is yes, we're blessed to live in a country where our corrupt, inept political system is much too concerned with destroying our lives in much more important ways to bother to forbid people who aren't skinny from calling skinny dipping skinny dipping. And then there's regular swimming, the kind you do while wearing a swimsuit. I don't personally own a swimsuit, but I don't think that should disqualify me from talking about swimming. For example, I know that some people call them bathing suits. Men call their swimsuits trunks. One good way to remember that a bikini is comprised of two separate pieces is to look at the first two letters of the word, B-I, which spells bi, which means two, as in bicycle, a cycle with two wheels, or bisect, to cut into two pieces. 
I don't know what Keeney means, and I can't think of any mnemonic devices for remembering that part. Oh, who am I kidding? No one's going to forget the word bikini in this culture. In the olden days, people wore much more modest swimsuits made out of thick material that, when saturated with water, would become very heavy and drag swimmers to the bottom, resulting in many drowning deaths. Which brings me to the last thing I want to address. Drowning. This is one water activity that you should seek to avoid, and if that means screaming and crying whenever water gets in your face, even very small amounts of water, then so be it. It's better to be safe than sorry. If you do find yourself drowning, the worst thing you can do is just give up and sink to the bottom. The best thing you can do is to swim to the surface and breathe some air. A thing you can do that's somewhere in the middle is to swim to the surface, but then continue to float face down in the water and hope that someone pulls you out. If the mob encases your feet in cement and drops you into one of the Great Lakes, try to latch onto the side of the boat with your teeth on the way overboard. If your bite misses or all of your teeth just break out on the rail, well, there's no other way to put this. You are in for a real drowning. If this were an ocean, you could hope for a shark to gnaw through your shins just above the cement. But this is the Great Lakes. The only sharks here are dead ones that got thrown out and dumped into the water with the rest of the garbage. And it can also be refreshing to give yourself a little spritz of cool water right in the back of your neck. Ah. Let's begin, shall we? It's been a little while since we've heard from the saint around here at Out of All Doors, and to be honest, I was beginning to worry about him. But I'm happy to report that we've received another round of dispatches from the field from him for this month. Since we last heard from him, the saint has discovered three new beasts, and as always, he sent me sketches of all three, as well as audio recordings of his field notes. I'll describe the sketches for you, and then let you hear the saint's accounts of his encounters with each beast. Now, the first drawing is of a disgruntled insect suspended in the air by a series of filaments. Pulley web. The pulley web fails to meet the strictest definitions of a living beast, but rather it is a bug. The pulley web, proud of its own architectural capabilities, spun a harness and tied a pulley to it on the ceiling. Then, after falling in love with his own prowess, he fed his web through the pulley and then began to slide down while holding on. As he had to um, secrete some web as he climbed, but the mechanical advantage of two to one by having a pulley in the ceiling made it so that he would pull his arms as fast as he could go, but the web would come out of his butt too fast. And so he was always stuck there, always trying to climb, but then as it fed down, it would just overtake him and he couldn't move. He was there for the whole time I watched him. I hoped that someday he would either learn to quit spinning new web so that he could just climb up, or he would climb faster. The second drawing is of, I believe, the same fish twice. In the first sketch, the fish has its mouth open and an arrow points forward. In the second sketch, the same fish has its mouth closed and the arrow points backward. Pressure fish. The pressure fish is characterized by its very, very, very flat and very, very, very hard top and bottom of the inside of its mouth. It seems like it needs to breathe through the mouth just like a regular fish, but it has a bad problem because it also needs to bite with its mouth just like every other fish. But here's the twist. With it being so hard and two flat surfaces, when he opens, 
it, the water rushes in to fill the mouth, thrusting the fish forward. And then as soon as the fish closes his mouth, that jets all the water from in between those two hard brick-like surfaces, jutting the fish backwards. And so, despite my efforts to get involved where I tried twisting the fish, speeding the fish up, or even sometimes I would um, twist the fish's fins for him, as soon as I would let go, he would just go forward a foot and a half and then backward a foot and a half. The third drawing is of, I think, a man, huge-eyed, huge-lipped, small of body, and bow-legged. In one hand, he holds a writing utensil, and the other, a piece of paper on which he has drawn something familiar. I was sleeping on the forest floor and was awoken by a cackling. The cackle grew louder and louder until it forced me to open my eyes up and quit like I was pretending to ignore it or that it just wasn't waking me up or I couldn't notice. It was cackling as it was studying me way too close. It made me uncomfortable how close it was studying me, right on top of me, looking, looking, and sketching once I was able to pry my eyes from its huge eyes, enormous smirk, and pushed in nostrils. I traced my eyes down this beast and saw I had a pen and a paper, and it was drawing me to the utmost of details. This also unnerved me and made me want to flee. I ran from the beast as it cackled and looked like it was drawing something more on the paper. Hello again, poetry fans. Cousin Ben, back for your monthly poetry installment. This time, I want to start by doing something a little bit different. I want to let you all in in a little bit of poetic context for me. Most of you probably won't know that I live in Beatrice, Nebraska. And a lot of you, no doubt, don't know that Beatrice is very famous for being the birthplace of an influential poet. Weldon Keyes is his name, and he was born here in 1914, and as well as being an incredible poet, he was also a very prolific artist. He was a songwriter, musician, he wrote short stories, took photographs, wrote screenplays, made films, and was a published art critic. Unfortunately, the one thing he is most famous for is for his mysterious disappearance in 1955. He was living in San Francisco at the time, and on the day that his divorce from his wife was finalized, they found his car parked by the Golden Gate Bridge, and he was never heard or seen from again. There are some people who very strongly believe, myself included, that he, in fact, left for Mexico and just assumed another identity where he spent the rest of his life there in anonymity. His parents, extended family, and neighbors of the family all share that strong conviction as well. I grew up in this town knowing about Weldon. I had read his poetry, I identified with much of it, and when I would walk to school I would also walk past his childhood home and think about the disappearing poet who grew up in my town. And I'm not just saying he's a great artist because he's from my hometown. Let me, let me read you a quote about something he said about Beatrice in a letter years later so you can see how good he really is. He said, <clears throat> I would rather wretch 
then go back to that town. <laughs> I mean, is that Piatris or what? I mean, could you have put it any better yourself if you, uh, you've never been here before? Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that Weldon is my homeboy. We're on the same wavelength. We were raised in the same geographical area, the same context. We have the same influences. Nature meant the same to us. We experienced southeast Nebraska and the floods in the same town and in the same streets. So it's with complete authority that I say that Weldon speaks for me and I for him. So I'm going to read one of his poems that is also about floods. And it might be a little tricky for some of you who aren't really experienced with advanced poetic interpretation because this poem sounds like an indoor-outdoor poem. <laughs> You're just going to have to trust me, to trust the professional here. It's really an outdoor poem about the power and the cleansing of a flood. So let's begin. This is Beatrice's favorite son, the late, or maybe not so late, but most certainly great, Weldon Keys, and his poem called if this room is our world. If this room is our world, then let this world be damned. Open this roof for one last monstrous flood to sweep away this floor, these chairs, this bed that takes me to no sleep. Under the black sky of our circumstance, mumbling of wet barometers, I stare at sighted dust that soils the grass. While thunder perishes, the heroes perish miles from here. Their blood runs heavy in the grass, sweet, restless, clotted, sickening, runs to these rivers and these seas, the seas that are the source of that devouring flood, that I await, that I must perish by. These are the five people you meet at a public pool. Number one is the runner. This young male pool-goer runs everywhere, bare feet slapping on the slick cement. Don't run, shout the lifeguards. Slow down. But he doesn't heed their cries, and he isn't punished. How come everyone else gets thrown out of the pool area if they insist on running, but the runner gets to stay? Well, his father owns all the chlorine in the pool, and without the chlorine, they'd have to shut the pool down. So if they want the chlorine to stay, well, they have to let the runner stay, no matter how much he runs. Number two is the low diver. This cautious diver anchors a rope to the end of the diving board and then lowers himself down hand over hand to just above the surface of the water, at which point he finally lets go and falls into the pool with a soft plop. He once attempted this dive in a diving contest and achieved the first negative score in the history of the sport, and one of the judges tried to strangle him as he climbed out of the pool. Number three is the approachable lifeguard. This lifeguard isn't as stern as the others. She seems like she's a lot easier to talk to. She's actually kind of friendly. She's the only one who doesn't shout, no running, at you as you walk toward her. And ultimately, it's these qualities that doom her to day after day spent gently declining requests to hang out sometime from the likes of you. But this summer will harden her, will teach her, and by the time she's old enough, she'll be shouting, no running, at men shouldering their way toward her from across the bar with the stalest of witty introductions poised on their tongues like dead flies lying on their backs. Number four is the I thought you said wave pool kid. You told this kid that this pool complex also has a special waif pool, and he thought you said wave pool. 
Unfortunately for him, the dictionary defines a waif as a child who has no home or friends, and this kid happens to have both a home and friends. So not only is he disappointed by the lack of a wave pool, he's not even allowed in the waif pool. Number five is the chemical man. The chemical man is not supposed to be at the pool while it's open. He's actually legally forbidden from being at the pool while it's open, but here he is skulking around, watching with naked envy as pool boys, who are far, far above him in terms of pool employee hierarchy, fish debris out of the pool with their long nets. Let's say the chemical man were to discover, while doing his rounds alone and under the cover of darkness, that the pool's chemicals were out of balance. What would he do then? He doesn't even know. Oh, to be a pool boy. The chemical man grows his fingernails long. They're my tools, he says. But how do long fingernails help a chemical man? The chemical man looks off into the distance, wistful. The task is gone, he says, but the tools remain. Do not read the chemical man's stories. They are gross. We all sit down in the special chairs, clad in our white hospital gowns. The lights blare down on us as the special chairs are reclined, leaving us in supine positions as cold electrodes are attached to our temples and our arms are strapped down. Machinery whirs and clicks, rivers of numbers flow past on computer monitors, syringes enter our arms, a black liquid enters our veins, and the world blurs and twists and collapses around us. We find ourselves deep inside of ourselves, far, far, far down inside of ourselves, a place both foreign and hauntingly familiar, reverberating with the echoes of long-forgotten thoughts from years past. But that isn't all that we find here, deep within ourselves. There are living entities, or perfect facsimiles thereof, hanging winged and fanged in the darkest recesses, in the corners of ourselves, Are they surprised to find us, of all people, here within us? We think not, for are they not also us, in a way? Who knows? We have entered the Battery. You have never lived in a universe without bats. A soldier has befriended a bat. The bat has become his confidant. His letters home are sweet-smelling lies, but the words he speaks to the bat reek of the dead. The bat is a sponge for the soldier's grief and horror. The bat soaks it all up and then blasts it out at super-high frequencies in order to locate bugs to eat, never knowing that the soldier is a traitor and a deserter and the letters he's sending home are actually being confiscated from the mailman by the soldier's commanding officer and given to dogs so they can can get the soldiers sent from them and then sniff him out so he can be tried for treason and hanged. If the words that the soldier has spoken to the bat are true, can they really also be treasonous? And if so, what will become of the bat in its lack of unwillingness to receive these treasonous words? There is nowhere to tune in at any time in the future to find out the answer to this question. Either I will tell you next, you will find the answer on your own through thought and reflection, you will never know. Even if all bats become extinct, the universe will never slip beyond their influence. Two bats are not better than one, nor is one better than two, but any is better than none. I have seen a bat swoon from too much moonlight, but not as from heat stroke, but as from love sickness. 
A totem pole carved with the bat figure in the second from the top position. It seems an error, but no, for the figure in the top position is also a bat. You need to wait until you get all the information before you get outraged. A lesson the internet can stand alert. Most people don't know what a bat's face looks like, but many pictures are readily available. So what we have here is a failure of initiative and a failure to understand that the faces of bats are actually quite handsome. Many parents ask me to recommend a specific bat to serve as a role model for their children. My answer is invariably the same. That one, I say, and I point to the bat that is always somehow standing nearby, the one with the good markings. All children should strive to have good markings. A bat is not a creature to be trifled with, but to be trifled for? Well then, yes indeed, trifle away. Some bats prefer warmth, some prefer chilly environments. They're not going to kill each other over it, that would be absurd. For the record, this is not an analogy for religious or political ideologies, it's just a statement of fact. Please don't twist it to suit your peaceful agenda if that's what you were planning on doing. You have never had a truly bat-like thought, nor will you. I probably won't either. When a bat tries to simplify its life, it succeeds 98% of the time. 1% of the time, it accidentally complicates its life. And 1% of the time, it willfully complicates its life in order to simplify the lives of millions of its compatriots. A bat sought fulfillment in the pursuit of feathers for its featherless wings. But there was no fulfillment to be found in feathers, a fact that may seem evident to us, but is in fact precisely as dumb as at least one thing that each of us believes will fulfill us. A statue of a bat, or a bat statue, or a bat-chew, stood in the opulent front hall of the manor, a reminder to all who entered through the manor's front doors that no matter whose name was on the mailbox at the end of the driveway this week, the bat was still calling the shots. Bats are grotesque, said a man who was accurate. Accurate in his quotation of a man who was inaccurate in his assessment of bats, that is. You have been near bats and not known. You have been oblivious or mistaken them for birds. But the Bible doesn't say that's a sin, so don't worry about it. I just looked up the color of bat blood. It's red. When I was a kid, my favorite exhibit at the Fort Wayne Children's Zoo was in the Australian portion of the park. You'd walk into a long, dark room wherein, all along one side, little Australian bats of some kind flew back and forth in front of a painted outback dusk between two fake caves where they could roost if they wanted. Instead of separating the bats from the visitors with glass, the zoo had opted for very thin wires so you could hear the fluttering of the little bats' little wings. Also, you could press a red button, which would somehow allow you to hear the bats' real-life high-frequency vocalizations in real time. Whenever we went to the zoo with someone who had never been there before, I would make them close their eyes before we went into the exhibit, so they could then open their eyes and be immersed in the scene, so it could feel real just for a second or two. If you squinted your eyes, you could almost believe the wires weren't there, as if there were nothing between you and the bats. What if bats could burrow like moles? They could dig their own cave systems. They would love that. But maybe they would lose something essentially bat-like in the deal, so it's probably best if everything stays as is. The 
Marquis advertised a one-man show, but what a delightful surprise when those in attendance discovered that while the show indeed only had one man in it, it also had hundreds of bats, although it wasn't clear if they were supposed to be a part of the show or not. In fact, nothing was clear. The lone survivor of the plane crash was a bat, or else the bat was a late arrival to the crash site. Plane experts have all deferred to bat experts on the topic, and the bat experts won't share their opinions on the matter with the public. So everyone remains in the dark. And you know who likes being in the dark. Bats don't need personalities. They have them anyway. What, so we're only allowed to shape our sugar cookies like bats during one month out of the year? Give me a break. A voice is calling us back. Whose voice is that, our own? Sort of sounds like it now that we mention it. The voice echoes through our deep inner selves. The bats flutter away from the sound, retreating deeper into us. So yeah, I guess this wasn't the absolute deepest part of ourselves after all. Although it may be the deepest we can go, maybe the bats part of ourselves can go deeper than the us part of ourselves. That's some confusing food. Food for thought, that is. As the bats go down, we go up, rising rapidly back toward the surface, back to our conscious minds, the reclining chairs and arm restraints and laboratory. We blink our eyes, the world swirls and stutters. A man in a hazmat suit waves his arms over his head and shouts, They saw bats! And as the world finally clicks back into place, we leave the battery. Hey everyone, welcome to another installment of Behind Closed Doors, the inner workings of Out of All Doors. I'm Casey By, and I'm back. Uh, Adam fired me, but I'm back. Uh, two episodes ago, my report included several bits of information taken from what I believe to be a reputable source, Adam's Diary, uh, which you can hear. See, right right there um i'm holding right here which uh doesn't really prove anything i know because you can't see it or what's written in it but just to give some context because i mean what do you really think i just picked up whatever book was closest to where i'm recording and i'm just flipping through uh you know whatever it is making page flapping noises pretending it's adam's diary no that would be misleading you and as a journalist i am all about the truth um anyway my point is someone must have apparently forged the diary uh, although I should mention that the stuff about Harrison having hit and killed a hitchhiker with a rental car was told to me by a separate, um, but as far as I know, extremely reputable source. Um, very reputable. Uh, let's say his name is Shaved Moon. Get it? Um, no. Let's say his name rhymes with Barrison or no Mr. H Blum he was just sloshed 
when he told me. And then he cried for a while. So I left. Excuse me. So occasionally as a journalist, the, uh, let's say, opportunity arises where you have to offer a correction and apologize for an inaccurate report and basically do some sucking up. Uh, Here at Out of All Doors, we prefer to do that dirty business in the form of a song, Uh, or at least I do, because normally, like in the times or whatever, they're kind of super boring. So I put it my little corrections into a nice little melody and make a ditty out of it. Um, I know the founders of Gentleman's Mills were particularly upset by the fact that I said a large percentage of the products they advertise on the podcast are made up. And apparently this is not true. So if you're listening, co-founders, the dandy and the hat, which I hope you are, please pay close attention to the third verse which has some really nice lyrics about how huge both of your So without further ado, make sure I'm in tune. Yeah, all right, here we go. One, two, three, four. Who calls soda pop? Only idiots. But that doesn't mean we should hate them. And if you're gonna be a little whiny son of what the Casey, can you hear me, Casey? Adam? No, this is God. Whoa. No, it's Jason. Look here. I'll climb out of the portal. What's up, Jason? As in the fictional character I created? Well, in a way, let me explain. You may recall a version of me appearing on previous episodes of the Out of All Doors podcast, which sounded something like this. Bye, now we're cooking! So if you say pajamas, and I say pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. Right, of course. But that was me doing an impression of Adam for a character I made up called Jason. In your reality, maybe. But I come from somewhere else, somewhere you couldn't possibly understand, even if I tried to explain. Is it another Earth in the multiverse? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I guess you would understand. I am from another Earth in the multiverse, and I've used this machine to tear tear a a hole in reality, reaching across from another dimension into our world. A world where you're a fictitious character. But in your world... Yes, in my world, the alternate Earth, where I call home, I am a real person. Because in the infinitude of the multiverse, every possibility is... is realized. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, okay, but I bet you didn't get that in my reality, I'm not the only fictional character who exists. On my Earth, all of your world's fictional characters are flesh and blood. Everything you've read in a book or seen in a film or TV show is true. All of them? All of them. How does that work? Like, do, say, Meg and Joe and Beth from Little Women, are they are they just doing the stuff they did in, in Little Women? But outside their door, it's, it's, it's just Mad Max post-apocalyptic wasteland. And, and also they're in the Matrix. And, and speaking of Little Women, is, is like every 
Winona Ryder characters, just every character Winona Ryder has ever played, just walking around the planet, all of them just looking exactly like Winona Ryder for no reason, and, and no one notices? Yes, and all of the Natalie Portmans and all the Scarlett Johansons. It's crazy hot, dude. All right, whatever. What do you need? I'm trying to record an apology song here. That's just the thing, Casey. Your song isn't necessary. Because everything mentioned in that diary of yours really did happen. Just on another Earth, where it was written by another Adam Drent. There's a disturbance in the multiverse, Casey. Somehow it allowed the diary to be transported to your Earth. But its dimensional frequency is off from this reality. If that object remains here too long, it could destroy your world. That's why I built this machine. It's why I'm here now. It took a long time, and it may have even taken my entire fortune. The fortune I made from winning American Idol each of its 16 seasons. But I did it, and now I need your help to return that diary. Casey By, will you join me, Jason, a thing you made up for a joke on a podcast, in traversing the multiverse to find this diary's planet of origin, wherever it may be in this infinitude of universes, in hopes of saving your home, planet Earth? You're damn straight I will. Let's do this. Then hop in and buckle up. It's going to be a bumpy ride across the multiverse. Yeah! And now here again is Out of All Doors amateur bird watcher Harrison Blum. Hello, listeners and Eleanor. I'd like to start this segment by thanking my brother Don for taking care of me these last eight weeks. As some of you may have heard, a postal truck cracked two of my vertebrae, but with Don's support, I'm recovering nicely. The bean-shaped bruise on my cheek has all but disappeared. And with the help of an inflatable lumbar pillow, I can once again sit upright long enough to eat my lean cuisines. When the postman sideswiped my bicycle, I thought for sure you'd all heard the last of old Harrison. In those few seconds, my whole life flashed before my eyes. Childhood trips to Sandy Lake, Eleanor crying at the altar on our wedding day, that time I tossed a tennis ball clean through a single diamond in our chain-link fence. For that brief moment, I shared with the birds I so carefully study the gift of flight. How I wish I could have slowed down those few seconds, if only to better recall my one opportunity to see the world as they do, those slivers of life even birds take for granted. The reflection of a sun off a bald man's head, the skyward glance of a confused child, the roof of a postal truck as it flees the scene of an accident. Unfortunately, these moments are lost to me. Upon landing, I grazed a parked Miata and caromed into a row of spongy hedges. The hedges, I'm told, broke my fall, but I was knocked fuzzy somewhere in between. 
The hedges will need to be replaced, but that's a matter for the lawyers, one of whom plays softball with Don. He says that while yes, my hiking boots came untied, and the laces got caught in my bike chain, which is why I swerved into the middle of the lane in the first place, the postman was traveling much too close, and will likely be at fault for any damages to me and the hedges. For now, while the medical bills, witness statements, and hedge estimates are getting sorted out, I'm staying on Don's hide-a-bed. Our living room is quite nice. There's plenty of sun during the day, the TV gets satellite, and we have a wealth of new magazines. In fact, I read an article the other day that claimed scientists have finally figured out which came first, the chicken or the egg. It's a dilemma that's always proven exhausting, personally. I know I don't have the mental capacities of, say, Bill Gates or Gadget Hackwrench, but I'm certainly no dummy. If I think about a problem for long enough, I tend to fall into the answer. Unfortunately, the more I'd think about the chicken and the egg, the more confused I'd get. Some days, when I closed my eyes tight, I could very clearly imagine a solitary chicken emerging from the darkest, most virgin dirt of Iowa, like a vegetable. Other days, however, I could see, with utmost lucidity, the image of a lone egg, the world's first, rolling softly across a wheat field. As it turns out, according to the article, reptiles had been laying eggs for thousands of years before chickens even existed. These lizards, or at least a few of them, evolved into some sort of feathery lizard birds. Over time, the genetic lizard-to-bird ratio tilted more towards bird. The first chicken, as we now know it, hatched from an egg laid by a lizard that was, by my rough estimate, 97% bird. I told this to Don as we sat in the living room, listening to our neighbors burn another bag of popcorn. To my surprise, that little bit of existential trivia left him speechless. I readied to spring on him a theory I've been working on, one in which we're all, in a way, birds, albeit underdeveloped ones, and how, a handful of eons from now, the first human will launch from a mountaintop, unaided by technology, man's ultimate triumph over gravity. Before I could begin, however, Don, with his ear still glued to the wall, asked, So what came first, hot stuff, the lizard or the egg? And we were back to square one. Please tell Eleanor I say hello. Love, Harrison. Cousin Ben again. More poetry for you. Since last month's flood poems that I shared with all of you, I've really been spending a lot of more time ruminating on this topic. Quite frankly, because it was hard to avoid it. Everywhere I went, roads were closed, there was damage being repaired all over my town, landscapes had changed, people were still talking about it, everyone is now weary with worry, eyeing the clouds with accusation, cautiously watching the riverbanks. This seemingly non-stop rain has stopped me from working, actually, many days this month, and I have spent a lot of time really concentrating hard on this topic Many an hour that I spent staring out into the rain, then sitting out in the rain, and finally laying out in the rain, really trying to get into the head of my subject, really reaching for a connection to nature herself and, and the floodwaters. Eventually, when I learned all I could where I was, I decided to go further, into the den of the beast, as it were. I grabbed my kayak and headed out into the Great Swollen River, into the floodwaters themselves. 
to see if I could get to the heart of the poetry, the heart of darkness that I could hear beating around the bends, like some deep mystical drumbeat driving me on and on. And here we go. I paddle deeper, seeking for the true answers. The waters just laugh. This month, Gentleman's Mills wants you to have fun with water. Gentleman's Mills believes that fun takes to water like a duck to water. Enjoy this special selection of products and services to help you have fun with water. Number one, combination wakeboard, ski set, kneeboard, slalom. This four-in-one water sport spectacular has all your wake-related needs in one. Haven't you ever been wakeboarding and wanted suddenly to ski right at that moment? Now you can. Simply separate the wakeboard into its two ski components or reattach the skis and kneel down to kneeboard. The slalom, simply separate the skis and abandon your least favorite ski. Adjustments must be made while the boat is in motion. Number two, debatable chocolatier. Shows up on your boat and begins constructing an elaborate chocolate fountain. Boaters immediately debate and wonder out loud, what's this guy actually doing on our boat? Number three, boat flag. This boat-shaped flag is a picture of a boat on it, affixed to the boat for maximum effect. Bury in the woods for minimum effect. Tack to garage door for moderate effect. Fly upside down at half-mast to offend family members of cruise ship disaster casualties. Number four, real gun to squirt gun conversion kit. Why waste time buying a new squirt gun when for slightly more than the cost of a new squirt gun, you can use the Gentleman's Mills Real Gun to Squirt Gun Conversion Kit to convert your real gun to a squirt gun with no one the wiser until you point it at them and pull the trigger. Number five, Gentleman's Mills Above Ground Pool. A reputable above-ground pool trade publication gave our above-ground pool a rating of one star. We don't know how many stars it's possible to get, but our above-ground pool is excellent, so we're assuming one star is the highest possible score. Number six, pool party. This pressure washer draws water from your pool to spray right at your brother's sloppy mop top, converting it into a laser crisp side part in seconds. His hair becomes the ultimate pool party. We do not provide the pool, which is the required pool parter. Number seven, surfboard trailer. Attach this semi-buoyant trailer to the back of your surfboard so you never have to sacrifice hauling capacity while you hang 10 again. Number eight, Splish Splash Aqua Casino. This floating roulette table, blackjack deck, and craps arena bring the rush of possible payouts to your floating party. Not for use when there is any possibility of wakes whatsoever as the pieces will get soggy and sink the first chance they get. Buy today and get our floating chessboard for a penny more. Number nine, broken snorkel. This snorkel isn't broken, but we say that it is so we can mark it down from its original exorbitant asking price while still saving face. Number 10, bigger shark costume. Forget everything you think you know about every other shark repellent. We all know there's only one thing that will make a shark cower in fear. We offer custom tailoring to sew you into your 50-foot shark costume, and it's free if we can video your first sharkless swim for future promotional purposes. 
Number 11, Dr. Large Wake's Wake Magnifier. This custom-designed flat-face device attaches to the back of your boat to increase stern weight, lift the bow to unsightly heights, and increase the whole boat's wake to dangerous levels. If you can ski in this wake, you're wake credible, slight death risk. Seaweed, S-E-E. Tired of all that seaweed hiding below the surface out of the line of sight? You can feel it wrapping its slimy tendrils around your legs, but you can't see it at all. Well, now you can. Gentleman's Mills provides you with a hyper-realistic polystyrene seaweed approximate that you can drape over your boat, board or body. Now all that seaweed will be seen-weed. Number 13, Beer Beach Towel. This beach towel has the word beer printed on it with a removable E at the end of the word that can be added or subtracted depending on how adult your beach event is. Number 14, the original H.L. Hunley. We've restored the actual Civil War submarine to its terrifying initial condition. Hop in with seven of your friends and blindly hand crank your way to a watery grave of the current's choosing. We recommend pairing with Gentleman's Mills Religious Relic Starter Kit. Number 15, Premium Snorkel. Exactly the same as the Broken Snorkel, but at the original exorbitant price, most of you cheapskates were too cowardly to pay. Number 16, Gentleman's Harpoon. This is a real mariner's harpoon that you can use for cocktail parties, gesticulating, and gentlemen's back scratchery. Number 17, Innard Tube. This irregular inflatable looks like a disgusting heap of entrails before you blow it up. Just imagine what it looks like when it's filled near to bursting with air. Number 18, water-soluble swim trucks. Illegal to wear at a public pool or beach, but there's no law against buying them and owning them. What you do with them after that is out of our hands. Number 19, Tommy the Turtle costume for kids. You guessed it. This is a real hollowed out sea turtle shell made for toddlers and children. Just unhinge the massive turtle shell and let the child swim freely in a river, lake, or water area. Just make sure he or she doesn't sink as he or she will have a tendency to do due to the massive weight of the shell. Also comes in tortoise for pokier children. Number 20, Total Recall Water Sports Edition. For some reason, this case is manufactured of cardboard, creating an instantaneously soggy mess. Number 21, Gulf Oil Spill Cleanser. The government kicked Louisiana residents aside by rejecting Gentleman's Mills Gulf Oil Spill Cleanser. If you are better than the government at all, you must buy this and stick it in your body of water. Number 22, Foreign Species. Introduce plant and animal diversity to your waterways with this pregnant grab bag. And number 23, Strange Couplings. These are technically boats. Hi, this is Gentleman's Milk co-founder, The Dandy, thrilled to bring you a new opportunity. It all begins with something that kind of seems like tough going. I was delivered a complaint from the court. It described a class action lawsuit, which I will paraphrase some parts of and read others. While the damages directly caused by Gentleman's Mills Blob are as varied, spectacular, and seemingly exaggerated as the defendant Gentleman's Mills product lineup itself, plaintiffs are bound by a common harm dished out unapologetically by the Gentleman's Mills Wedding Blob. Now, you'll remember a month ago, on the last episode of Out of All Doors, we offered an exciting lineup of wedding season products, one of which was the Wedding Blob, a romantic, gigantic, inflatable thing where a groomsman jumps from the balcony and launches the groom into the baptismal tank, just like back in the summer camp days. 
Well, listeners, back to the legal matter at hand before I get to the good part that's got me so excited to talk to you today. As part of this court document, apparently to get the judge to take the case, they had to give examples of crap going real wrong with the gentleman's Mills Wedding Blob product. Here are some of the things that the plaintiffs claim, well, that happened while they were using our product. One, blob launched into the ceiling tiles, damage to the church and spine. Two, missed the baptismal tank entirely and crashed into a flower arrangement. Three, groomsmen jumped and missed the blob, destroying his tux. Groomsman jumped and missed the blob, destroying his tux, as the confused groom rolled off the blob, doing countless dollars of damage. This next one's in quotation marks, blob popped. Also in quotation marks, blob, <laughs> blob was solid as a rock. <laughs> the third and final one that was in quotation marks, Blob was a 40-foot whoopee cushion which deafened the crowd, cracked priceless stained glass windows, and gave the bride emotional hardship and a dollar amount to be determined by this court. Next, Blob served as a complex Rube Gold Machine's pneumatic pump, launching all in attendance from their seats, contrary to the packaging claims and verbal statements. Lastly, and tell me if we should get in trouble for this, even though the complaint later says this is one of our worst offenses, the groomsmen launched the groom into the baptismal tank on the first try, just as promised. The groom did not have prior swimming knowledge or experience and was further hindered by his ornate ethnic wedding attire. Due to the blob and Gentleman's Mill's reckless business practices, a would-be groom met his end on that special day. Now, you might be saying, Dandy, how can you be so chipper at a time like this? Shouldn't this be your darkest hour? Well, I would be if it weren't an opportunity for you. Out of all doors fans, listen. Today I'm offering you the opportunity to place a wager on whether or not we are successful at defending ourselves in court. That's right. Simply mail your $250 bet to Gentleman's Mills headquarters along with your prediction on our outcome. I will promptly send you a receipt, which I'm no accountant, but receipts might or might not make the gamble tax deductible in your tax jurisdiction. Also enclosed will be a statement notifying you of the payout size if you win. You might be saying, hold your socks, Dandy. Isn't it really complicated to maintain a fair but solvent gambling book? Well, fear not. Our book is meticulously audited by no less numerically savvy of a whiz kid as the prestigiously neutral and objective Gentleman's Mills co-founder of the hack. Now is not the time to not buy Featherwood Frames from featherwoodframes.com, and later on doesn't seem like it'll be a good time for that either. You know what a great time to not buy Featherwood Frames from featherwoodframes.com was? Before the company existed. Like back when Dave and I were still living in the dorms and he was hiding a bread machine in his closet because we weren't allowed to have bread machines in the dorm. But Dave wasn't about to go without fresh-baked bread machine bread. This sounds like a joke, but it isn't. One bad thing about that bread machine, though, is that it wasn't pedal-powered. But Dave learned from that error, and that's why all the machines they use to make their wooden glasses frames over at Featherwood Frames are pedal-powered. I have not yet heard whether or not Dave has invented a pedal-powered bread machine, but I have no doubt that he could. 
Dave also one time did this thing where he cut up a lamp cord in our cheap hotel room in Utah so that we could plug in the three-prong plug for my laptop into a two-prong outlet. The hotel room only had two-prong outlets, and we thought we were doomed to not plug in my laptop, but no, Dave sprang into action. I don't really know how it worked, but in the end, my laptop was plugged in, and Dave accomplished this by cutting up the lamp cord. I don't know how. It was like magic. And this is one of the guys making your glasses frames out of locally harvested wood if you order a pair from featherwoodframes.com. I think he also built the water tank thing for his son's home birth, although I may be mistaken, and I don't know for sure if that was made from locally harvested wood like the glasses frames are. Listen, I'm getting a little out of my depth here, and I don't want to be telling any tales out of school, so just go to Featherwood Frames and buy some glasses frames. I doubt that it's difficult. Featherwood Frames. Light as a feather would. See how strong and see how mighty I am glad you have chosen to take the time out of your busy, hectic, crazy schedules to join me in nature's serenade. I am as always your most gracious host, Gregory Hugavine. You may also know me as G-Honey. This is a safe and wonderful place. Blessings. Well, let's get to it, shall we? Who's ready to folk out? Who's ready to get folky? <laughs> I know that I am. I am so excited to do so, but before we bring the folk, I probably should explain to all of you listeners where I am and what I am up to. Folk music isn't about just a melodious, catchy tune. It's about bringing the issues to light, bringing them out in the open. And sometimes a good folk song is about protesting. And tonight, dear listeners, that is exactly what I am doing. I am recording this segment late, very late in the evening. In fact, I don't think it's evening anymore. It, it, it could be morning. Anyway, what am I doing in the outdoors so late at night, you may ask? Well, to answer all of you loyal listeners, I must begin by saying I love hiking. Hiking is magical. Hiking is my way of clearing my head from all thought. Hiking is a great stress reliever. I recommend it to anyone and everyone. I sometimes like to go hiking without having a destination in mind, just to get lost out in the wilderness. On one such occasion, about three months ago, I came to one of the most beautiful hillsides I have ever seen. It was marvelous, simply divine, green and lush and full of wildlife. It was indeed love at first sight, like seeing a beautiful woman for the first time. It reminded me of when I first witnessed a beautiful woman. My junior high gym teacher, Miss Vivian Callahan. Whew. She was something to behold. I mean, wow. <laughs> so, of course, I had to name my newfound love Mount Vivian. And over the next three months, I've had kind of a, a love affair, you might say, with, with Mount Vivian. I, I would come visit her about every other day. 
I would lay in her delicate fields, marvel at her shapely rock formations, and listen to the sounds of her trees, whispering to me ever so gently, Gregory, Gregory, Gregory. <sighs> so you can imagine my fury, my rage, when on a recent visit I saw them, the monsters, the horrible, horrible monsters. What they've done is unforgivable. Several giant trucks with shovels and drills were defacing my Vivian. They were removing her trees, digging away her, at her soil. But worst of all, they were breaking her rock formations. Her glorious rock formations were gone in a heap of rubble and dust. And why were they doing this? <sighs> I looked at the signs on the sides of the trucks, and it read, Davidson's Quarry. In what took eons to form, they were dismantling in mere seconds just to make gravel for country roads. Davidson's Quarry. Davidson's Quarry, the monsters. So on this night, I have done something that many of you may think is rash, but it's necessary. I have chained myself to the Davidson's Quarry trucks to defend the honor of Vivian. I mean, Mount Vivian. Most likely, you listeners will see me on the news tonight, or this morning, I guess. I invite you to join me in my protest. No more digging. No more drilling. No more Davidson's Quarry. And if, and if I can just, if I can just reach my guitar. Ah, there, okay. I got it. I will now play you a song I wrote in defense of the once magnificent Mount Vivian. Into 
Thank you once again, my faithful listeners, for tuning in this e- Oh, shoot. Stupid phone? Oh, where's the pause button on this thing? Hello? What do you want? No, look, I- I'm in the middle of something right now. Audrey, what, what is it? Stop crying. What do you want? Your, your, your car broke down? What? No, I'm recording my show right now. I don't have time. No, no, this isn't worthless. No, you're worthless. No. Fine. I will come and pick you up. I'll be there in ten minutes. Fine. I'll talk to you later. Bye. the record button. Okay, there we go. Thank you once again, my faithful listeners, for tuning in this evening. I will let you know next week how things fare for me. Oh, and before I forget, I have now a Twitter account. You can follow me at ghoneyfolk, and we can discuss all things nature. Blessings! Thank you for joining me on Nature's Serenade. See how mighty I am Out of all doors listeners, do you like lies? The reason I ask is because Maya, the dreadful woman who stole the Out of All Doors blog URL so that she could prop up a disgusting blog in praise of the indoors in its place, has updated that blog with a story that runs directly contrary to a story that I shared on this podcast a few months ago. And it should be noted by running contrary to my story, her story also runs contrary to the truth. So let's read what she has to say. Let's just wade right into the stinking muck. She writes, Hello again, everyone. Recently, there's been some pretty false and untrue stories going around about how it is that I came to love the indoors so much. You know what they say, haters are going to hate. And really, they don't hate you at all, they're just jealous. So I shouldn't give all these liars the satisfaction of a response, but I can't just ignore them. So here I am to set the record straight and hopefully inspire all of you with a story about how I came to see the fluorescent indoor light. Back in the bad old days, I was just like your average person. I'd go to the park, the beach, and even go have picnics in the woods. Apparently, I was too dumb to even notice all the germs, ants, and lizards crawling all over my food. Anyways, I'd probably still be a dirt-covered, grass-stained loser were it not for that fateful late-night phone call that I got from my friend Justin. Justin lived just down the street from me, and back then he was madly in love with me. You know how that goes, girls. Anyway, Justin was an ornithologist, and he was working for the government trying to figure out how to either kill all the birds or how to get them to stop pecking out people's right eyes all the time. Jason called me up in a panic that night. Maya, he said, I just got back from the bird studying lab, and there are some terrible developments you need to know about. Really, I said? I know the birds are getting worse and worse, but you don't need to worry about me. You know that I already lost my right eye years ago rescuing that baby from the serial baby kidnappers. I know, Jason said, but that's exactly why I'm calling you. We just got back the results of our tests, and it turns out that there's a new strain of birds that are pecking out people's left eyes. It's really not safe for you to go outside until we figure out how to kill these birds. 
The first few days I stayed indoors. I was so depressed. I felt like my life was over. Little did I know it it had just begun. Since I couldn't go outside, I eventually had to find things to do indoors. When I put my mind to it, I found that there was way more to do than I had ever imagined, and none of them involved getting sunburned, bug-bitten, ivy-poisoned, or dog-rabied. That's when I first discovered what are now my two favorite hobbies, decorating and redecorating. Before long, I was having so much fun that I didn't even think about going outside anymore. Then, after three weeks, I got another call from Jordan. Good news, Maya, he said. The bird problem is taken care of. Turns out that birds can't stand mustard, so we just sprayed a whole tanker truck full of it in the park, and now all the birds are gone for good. Wow, I said, that's great, but I didn't mean it. I'll call you back, I said, and hung up. I knew I had some soul-searching to do, so when I got off the phone, I headed straight for the meditation area I had set up in the coat closet. I closed my eyes and looked deep, deep inside myself, and what I found when I looked inside was the inside. I realized that the outside had never had anything I needed or wanted or could even stand. I knew then for certain that the indoor me was the real me, the me I really was, and the rest, as they say, is history, or more like it, her-story. My story. The liar! She is a liar. A bird pecked her eye out while she was babysitting me, and she knows it. And that's why she's terrified of the outdoors. Real reason. Leviathan. For far too long, man treated the waters as a benevolent mother or a pet to entertain him on his weekends and long holidays. He had become so wise and powerful that he had made the waves subservient and docile. With his concretes and steels, his carbon fibers and fiberglass holes, his nets and his harpoons, his water turbines and his hoover dams, his offshore oil rigs and massive container ships. All was his. The waters were giving. The harvest was plentiful. He had abolished the terror of the dark and the deep back into his novels and his films, shrunk them down to fit in his phones and his tablets. The waters were jealous and would have no gods before them. The rivers and the springs tunneled and burrowed to meet their comrades on the coasts. The supply lines were long, but the soldiers were many. Then, when the time was ripe and all was in place, the great conch was blown. I remember that morning that it all came apart. All our hopes and daydreams and lazy weekend fantasies were all playing along in our minds' movie theaters. One moment, all was well. Jet skis and wakeboards, fly tying and inner tubing, volleyball and copper tone, pontoon boats and flip-flops. And the next... So many were struck down right where they stood. It couldn't be real. No way, no how, not here, not now. Not a muscle could move, and they were overtaken. Some still talk of the silence that led the way, like death digging its cleats into the soft, starting clay. 
I remember the air blast, the dust and the trash that came rushing ahead and stinging us all, and then came the sound that I still hear when waking, bolt upright and crying, crushing my hands over my ears, sweating and gasping, the deep evil roar that mixed with the cracking and groaning of the world being uprooted, shredded, blended together and pulverized. We half stepped and stumbled, not yet committing to run, our ears sounding the alarm, but our eyes wanting to see what we were to be running from. And then we got our wish. Now I would trade both of them to never have seen it, to never have known the face of the destroyer. I would trade every painting in the Louvre, every sunset, every sunrise, every sight that ever warmed my heart or brought the slightest bit of joy to my soul. <coughs> Later on, the snow fell, and we few burrowed for warmth anywhere we could find it. We were ready for dark to help our eyes rest, to try to forget what we never could. The night didn't come, but instead a blood sky. We crawled back out and stood glowing in the red and the orange of the curtains of the fire and the smoke. We had long since moved beyond words, beyond tears, beyond prayers, and all stood half alive before the lake of fire that had come to judge us all. As cold as we were, the fires froze us deeper. All that floated was burning, as if the waters had formed a wartime alliance with fire against the common enemy, and now fought side by side until it would be time to divide up the spoils. Both our lives and our masses drowned and cremated in one strike. Where is your leisure now, O oh man? Where are your beach holidays and ski boats? Ishmael was wrong. Leviathan swam not in the deep. The Leviathan is the deep. Close your eyes, you rascal. You know me. I'm the one who tells you to close your eyes at the beginning of every visualization exercise at the end of every episode of Out of All Doors so far. So again, close them. Lie back. Relax. Breathe breaths of uncommon depths. You are a human-shaped lump of cold, gray serenity. You are canoeing upon the still waters of a tree-lined river and your canoe capsizes, dumping you right in the water. You right your canoe and clamber back into it with a sort of awkward flopping grace. Taking your paddle back in hand, you recommence your gentle rowing, thereby capsizing your canoe and again finding yourself dumped right into the water. After another struggle to right and re-enter your canoe, you discover that your paddle is floating in the water just out of reach. While you're still deciding if reaching for the paddle would be a good idea considering how easily this canoe capsizes, the canoe capsizes, dumping you right into the water. This solo canoe trip has barely started and you've already spent more time capsized than uncapsized. 
You again right the canoe and crawl back into it, dripping wet and more than a little tired and you capsize again. Your weariness with capsizing has made you careless, causing you to capsize even more. The problem, as they say in the self-perpetuating problem business, is self-perpetuating. If only there were a way to use capsizing to your advantage, but there is not. Not even in a visualization exercise, I'm sorry. What can I say? Canoes are canoes. Canoes do as canoes do. No canoes is good canoes. Having righted and re-entered your canoe, you begin to paddle downstream with slow, even strokes. Water bugs dancing away across the surface of the river. A family of ducks swims past in the opposite direction, quacking at you to see if their quacks will get some bread out of you. But your bread is long gone, irretrievably lost in one of the capsizing, speaking of which you capsize again. After riding the boat and crawling back in, you paddle onward admiring the subtle wonders of the river, capsizing, and enjoying the feel of the sun on your face. Eventually, you paddle and capsize your way to a branch in the river, and, being the adventurous sort, you take the branch to your left, or your right, it doesn't really matter, you take one of the branches, steering yourself very carefully toward whichever branch you've chosen, so as to capsize as little as possible, but it doesn't work. You set a new world record for number of capsizings on this portion of the river. Having begun this portion of your canoeing excursion by permanently etching your name in halls of ignominy, things can only improve from here, you think, as you set a new world record for least amount of time spent uncapsized between two separate capsizings. This part of the river is even more beautiful than the part of the river you were previously on, as far as you can tell from the glimpses you get of it on your way out of the canoe and into the water over and over again. On the one hand, you're not getting any better at not capsizing your canoe, but on the other hand, you're getting very proficient at riding your capsized canoe. Let's say a group of Girl Scouts was on a canoe trip and a boulder fell into the water creating a large wave that capsized all of them at once. You would be the perfect candidate to dive into the water and swim from canoe to canoe, riding each of them quickly and efficiently. Others may be able to swim between the capsized canoes faster than you, but none of them would be able to right the canoes as fast as you. That's what would give you the advantage. In fact, knowing you, you wouldn't even have to dive into the river. You'd most likely, having capsized your canoe prior to the boulder falling in the water, already be in the river, saving even more time. As your canoe capsizes and you fall into the water, you notice a man watching from the bank. When you resurface and right your canoe, you can feel his eyes upon you. Do you need help? calls the man. How? you call back, pausing before re-entering the canoe in order to challenge this man. How would you help me? What could you possibly do? The man, chastened by this hard dose of reality, retreats into the underbrush. It's a satisfying moment for you as you climb back into and capsize the canoe in one fluid motion. Making your way farther downriver, your surroundings become even more beautiful, although you haven't seen much wildlife, possibly because it's all been frightened away by the constant splashing and hollering of your approach. The river is more shallow here, and the bottom is soft and sandy, making it easier to get back into the canoe after it's capsized, but it also means you're accumulating more and more sand in your trousers with each successive capsizing. Pros and cons, costs and benefits, checks and balances, that's one thing stated in three synonymous ways that this canoe trip is teaching you in addition to the main lesson, which is that it's difficult for you, at least, to not capsize a canoe. 
begin to wonder if maybe the problem isn't you. Maybe the problem is this specific canoe. Maybe no one would be able to keep this canoe uncapsized for any length of time. But then you remember the old saying, a good carpenter never blames his tools. Having a degree in literature, you know for a fact that the saying doesn't apply only to carpenters, that carpenter merely functions as a stand-in for all craftsmen and beyond. Although only a fool would believe that 100% of all tools are perfectly formed, that no tool could ever possibly contribute to the failure of a project, what if the head of the hammer were made of soap, and you tried to drive nails with it, and then the person who hired you to build the chair showed up and was like, where's my chair? And you were like, well, there's no chair because I couldn't drive any nails with this hammer. And the guy was like, a good carpenter never blames his tools. And then you just held up the hammer, and the guy looked at it in confusion. So then you squirted a little water on it and gave it a good rub and started to work up a lather, and the guy realized the head of the hammer was soap. And he said, well, it's still your fault that you bought a hammer made of soap and had no backup hammers available when you're supposed to be a carpenter. So, yeah, I guess the adage is right. Never mind. Hey, you realize the whole time you were thinking about the whole a good carpenter never blames his tools thing? You didn't capsize even once? Then you realize that's because you never got back into the canoe after you righted it. You just stood lost in thought next to the canoe and water up to the middle of your chest. Sighing, you climb back into you capsize. You ride the canoe and climb back you capsize. You ride the canoe and clot you capsize. You ride the canoe and climb back in and and nothing happens. You sit in the canoe, floating atop the water. You wait. You wait for the punchline. You know it must be coming. Maybe the canoe won't capsize, but the river will carry you over a waterfall. Maybe the canoe will spring a leak. Maybe, exhibiting something akin to Stockholm Syndrome or masochism or something, you'll deliberately capsize the canoe. Maybe that man from earlier will show up again, and in his attempts to help you, will actually capsize you right as it appears as if you figured out how to not capsize. Maybe those ducks will show up eating the sodden bread they recovered from the side of your first capsizing of the day. Maybe I'll just keep telling you about possible punchline endings and then suddenly interrupt myself mid-punchline scenario to say, you capsize. But what you don't know is that you've been capsizing this whole time. Even when I said you weren't capsizing, you were capsizing. You're capsizing right now, right this very second. You're capsizing before I even say it. You're capsizing whether I say it or not. What you are really learning from this visualization exercise is not that you capsize easily, it is that you are currently capsizing. Why you keep riding the canoe and climbing back into it is not something you will learn in this visualization exercise. You capsize and capsize and eventually the rhythm becomes familiar. Then it becomes almost comforting. Then you have difficulty imagining what it would be like to canoe without capsizing. The thought gives you anxiety, so you stop even considering the possibility. You don't merely surrender to the capsizing, you embrace it. Do you like it? Well, no, I wouldn't say that. It's uncomfortable, exhausting, you make terrible progress, you can't really see the scenery. But nevertheless, capsizing is what you do. It's your thing. And so that brings you a kind of peace. A sort of distant cousin of peace. And now, as you open your eyes and return to your normal routine, I encourage you to take the distant cousin of the peace of out of all doors with you, even when you're inside of one
thank you for listening to the 11th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Drent, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfuse, J.J. Evans, Casey By, Brang Lynch, Ben Bird, Steve Tartaglioni, Chris Nichols, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. Thanks to Casey By, J.J. Evans, and Chris Nichols for making all the music used in the show. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdrent at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at HugePop. Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed, be sure to check out my website, HugePop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make is The Mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you could rate and review those too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart style phones. We'll be back in a month with episode 12 of Out of All Doors.